You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, tonight, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, and we're beginning chapter 4. Together, you will find this on page 1030 of the Pew Bible. We're going to be reading together Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 through 6a, first half of verse 6. Page 1030 of the Pew Bible. And we're going to be reading chapter 4, verses 1 through 6a. Hear the word of God. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit. And behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Well, together we have carefully considered Christ's seven letters to the seven churches. In them the Lord of life and the King of kings made known his will to his people. And he knows the churches. He searches the hearts and he tests the impulses of every soul. He commends, he rebukes, he promises, he threatens as the glorified sovereign. And the Lord Jesus Christ, as we found, overrules all things for his glory and our good. The perspective now shifts from the churches on earth to the throne in heaven. And our attention is drawn away from the condition of things in this world. We go from its conflicts and its sin and its sadness to the blessedness of eternity. How different is that perfect splendor to the guilt and the strife and the tears of this world? We cannot see heaven with our eyes, but here God reveals it to our faith. And we learn of his absolute sovereignty and the glory of his reign. So in his vision, we're told that John saw an open door in heaven. And of course, heaven, as you probably know, can be defined in one of three ways. The first heaven is the atmosphere that surrounds the earth, what we call the aerial heaven, the one in which the birds of the air fly. The second heaven is outer space, or what we call the starry heaven. These things declare the glory of God. 
The third heaven is the place of God's throne or the heaven of heavens where the glorified saints and the angels that had not fallen exist. Paul says to the Corinthians, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. And it is to this incomparably high heaven that John refers in this particular text. It's filled with the glorious presence of God. This is the place where he manifests his glory in a very special way. It's the place to which Christ in his risen splendor ascended to glory. The way to this heaven was barred when the first Adam sinned at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We're told in Genesis 3 that God drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And of course, only in the fullness of time was the door reopened by Jesus at the cross. The apostle says we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. So through death, Christ has unlocked the door to heaven so that heaven is once again accessible to man. And what kind of amazement do you think would come over us if we ourselves could look through that door? To the unbeliever, I think it would be sore amazement, confusion, terror all at once. And so will it be to him at the moment of death when he does see the throne. The earth in which he lived and the earth on which he trusted was just a fading reality. But to the believer looking through that door, it would be a blessed amazement, unparalleled peace and joy. And so will it be for him at death when he enjoys that beatific vision. He will see Christ as he is, and as a result, he will become like him. So in John's vision, he was invited by Christ to enter through the door whose voice was like a trumpet. Come up here, he said, and I'll show you what must take place. After this, and the Lord was about to show John symbols of things that must take place. These things are not those that may take place. These are the things that must take place. In other words, these are the things to be revealed that are of divine necessity. They've been decreed by a God whose purpose will stand. And when hearing the voice, John is once again, we're told in the spirit as he was in chapter one which means I think that he was so filled and equipped by the Holy Spirit that he's able to see and hear such things, things that, of which we can't even conceive. As Bevis reminds us, a man must be in the Spirit to see the glory that streams through the open door of heaven. And that upon which John fixes his gaze is the throne standing majestically in heaven. Now, I probably don't have to remind you, but thrones are symbols of power and dignity. They're visible seats of the sovereign. They're often elevated by several steps and richly ornamented, oftentimes covered with gold. For example, Solomon's throne was made of ivory overlaid with gold, raised upon six steps with 16 stone lions on the sides. 
And it visibly symbolized the monarch's exalted position and his supreme authority. There in heaven, through the open door, John saw the greatest throne of all. And it's fascinating that this throne is mentioned in almost every chapter of the book of Revelation. Of the 62 New Testament occurrences of the word throne, 47 of them are found in the book of Revelation. Do you think he's emphasizing something? The notion of a heavenly throne, of course, was a common theme throughout the Old Testament. Micaiah said, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing beside him, 1 Kings 22. Isaiah 6, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Or again, Psalm 103, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. So, of course, those to whom he's writing were familiar with the idea of a throne. They knew about the throne of Caesar, but that was just an earthly throne. The throne that John saw is the heavenly one. It's the throne above every throne. It's multifaceted. It's the throne of mercy and the throne of grace. It's the throne of glory and the throne of majesty. It's the throne of dominion and sovereignty. Indeed, God's throne is high and lifted up, supreme, universal, unchanging, and eternal. It's the throne of judgment. What is later called the great white throne in chapter 20. And from this throne, we're told there that earth and sky fled, and before it, every one of us will stand on the final day of judgment. In this text, we find four different perspectives on, around, from, and before. On the throne sat one having the appearance of jasper and carnelian in verse 3. And of course, precious stones are representative of sovereign majesty and resplendent glory. It's the radiance of one sitting in undisturbed contentment and eternal bliss. And it would be hard for us, I think, to miss the similarities between John's vision and that of Ezekiel. We read it earlier. Above the expanse, over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne, an appearance like sapphire. Seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance, and like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain. So was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, said Ezekiel, I fell on my face and I heard the voice of one speaking. Both of these visions imply God's infinity, eternality, immutability, and majestic glory. If nothing else, it should lead us to worship the true and living God. He sits upon the throne. He's sovereign and supreme and he's glorious. That's why we're told in Psalm 29 to ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. We can't confer anything upon God, but we can recognize his glory. And with voice and heart, we ascribe to him the glory that is due, and we worship the King of Kings. Secondly, both of these visions imply God's sovereignty is universal, meaning that everything is under his control. Angels, men, and devils, 
birds and animals, mountains and molehills, storms and wars, all of it's under his control. Whatsoever exists, exists by his will and is governed by his providence. And God's throne is the central, dominant, most striking aspect of John's vision, a throne. Everything merely surrounds it and stands in relationship to it. Both of these visions imply that God's sovereignty is absolute. He receives his authority from no one. The text says a throne stood in heaven. It's firmly established. God's right to rule all things was not obtained by some exploit. It was not won by some war. It was not secured by bribery or gained by election or received by inheritance. God's authority is absolute. It is coterminous with his eternal being. Psalm 115 says, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. It's sovereign. And finally, both of these visions imply that God's sovereignty is wise, pure, just, and thankfully, infinitely good. It is at the one, time, one and the same time a throne of holiness and a throne of grace. We're told by the psalmist, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you so that God is able both to save his people and to destroy his enemies. He's absolutely sovereign. Well, this vision of God's sovereignty must have comforted suffering Christians. His throne is above all thrones, especially that of Caesar. Any throne that can claim supremacy or pervert justice, his throne is above it. It's above all strife and discord and confusion, and it firmly stands in heaven. It is supreme in authority and infinite in power and unmatched in glory. That's his throne. George Rogers comments about God's throne revealed to comfort the saints, and he says this, To Isaiah, visions were given in affliction. To Jeremiah, in prison. To Ezekiel, in captivity. To John, in exile. Having opened a door, he invites us to come and promises rich manifestations of his wisdom and grace to our souls. So this world has a ruler. And it's not a giant ship without a captain. There is an all-wise, all-powerful king who sits upon his eternal throne, and his rule cannot be threatened or thwarted or thrown into panic. James Young tells us God's throne is established in the heavens. It's ordered and arranged, guarded and disposed by infinite wisdom and unerring skill. It is firmly fixed, stable, and immutable, and he knows, decrees, and governs every detail of history. Even the hairs of your head. And the vision of his heavenly throne indicates that he is in complete control, regardless of how rampant evil seems to run, regardless of how prosperous the wicked seem to become. And regardless of how difficult life seems to be, God reigns. And his sovereign hand guides and governs every facet of the entire universe. God is seated on the throne. And the scepter is in his hand. And he wields all power. And let's not forget that everything that happens on earth has been decreed in heaven 
Isaiah 66 says this. I think our elder prayed about this earlier. Heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. If you're troubled by current events, meditate upon God's regal power. Hendrickson said, we see God's footstool. Let's not forget his throne. Sometimes I think it is hard to believe. It's hard for me. I see things around me that are confusing, tragedies. But he works all things together for good. That's what he says. And we need not live in cowering fear as if he did not control the universe. Jesus said, do not, imperative, command, do not be anxious about your life. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? The Father sent his Son to die under the curse as a ransom for souls. And since he has provided the greater, will he not provide the lesser? Will he not give us what we need in this life to serve and worship him? O ye of little faith, be not anxious. God is ever faithful to provide. The wisest man who ever lived outside of Jesus Christ says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he'll make straight your paths. Well, around the throne, there was this rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. You may remember that after the ancient flood, the rainbow established or was established as a sign of God's covenant with creation. It says in Genesis 9, when the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And that was meant to serve as a constant reminder of his covenant pledge. The flood was a solemn illustration of the severity of God's wrath. Destroyed everything with breath. In the deluge, the world was drowned for sin. Noah's sacrifice afterward was a grateful response to the riches of God's grace. For the sake of Christ, human history would progress despite our ill desert. We don't deserve this. We don't deserve to take another breath. But in that bow, God the warrior laid down the archer's bow and he entered into a covenant of peace. And the heavenly rainbow that John sees in his vision is the sign of a better covenant, the new covenant in Christ's blood. It shows for believers that the flood of wrath is over. The cross stilled the storm, and it had the appearance of an emerald, a deep, durable, living green that signifies peace. It implies beauty and durability and richness of blessing in the covenant of grace so that you and I are not left to muddle in vague thoughts about the meaning of the rainbow. This vast emerald arch shining all around the throne stretches, uh, stresses God's fidelity. He's faithful. And it's a sign that the covenant blessings in Christ are ever fresh, ever green, ever pleasant. It serves as a token of love, an emblem of mercy, and a pledge of faithfulness. 
People make promises and we enter into covenants only to break them at will. Isn't that right? The promises and the covenant made by God is as unchangeable as himself. He'll never change it. He'll never renege on his promise. It's an abiding covenant that lasts forever and Christ ever lives to intercede. That's why in Isaiah 54, the Lord says, The mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. And my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. So he who rules the universe binds himself by promise to bless you and me in Christ. He's bound himself. He guarantees pardon and acceptance through Christ if we only trust in him. And he pledges to give eternal life to everyone and anyone who embraces the gospel by faith. Also, we're told that around the throne were 24 thrones on which were seated 24 elders. And I think this seems to be a symbol of the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles of the Lamb together. What that means simply is a unified church, both Old Testament and New Testament, coming together and represented before God. Through Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father, says Paul. And all of us, old and new, sing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb, which are basically one. Together, we'll wear white garments of holiness and golden crowns of victory. Because he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Not because he foresaw that we would be holy, but because he chose us to make us holy. That's his design. It's a long, gradual process that continues throughout the entirety of life. But at the end, holiness. If we endure, we'll also reign with him. We'll share that throne. But then John says, from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. And it's likely that these demonstrate the holiness of God, which cannot or who cannot tolerate sin. The same frightening phenomena were visible at Sinai, thunders, lightnings, a thick cloud. And when what John saw was no less majestic and no less awe-inspiring than that scene at Mount Sinai. From the throne, these things flashed to signify God's judicial splendor. He is the judge. He's the God of judgment, our judge, our lawgiver, our king, before whom everyone trembles. And his justice is absolutely unyielding. It's utterly inflexible. There is no compromise with God. He will, Exodus 34, by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children. So God's justice must be fully satisfied before his mercy can be extended. Should we not therefore be thankful for the Lord Jesus who suffered to satisfy divine justice? He himself, for the sake of his people, endured the curse of the law and the terrors of death. He went into the midst of that flash of lightnings and those rumblings and those peals of thunder for you and me. He went into the very midst of hell's torments for us. 
Having agonized in Gethsemane, he suffered and died at Calvary's hill so that the Son's life was sacrificed and God's justice was satisfied and our salvation was accomplished. And that's why we worship tonight. And then before the throne, the apostle John saw burning seven torches of fire, similar to the ancient of days in Daniel 7, before whose throne there was a stream of fire. John says that these seven torches represent the seven spirits of God in verse 5. And by that, I assume he's saying that it's the spirit in all of his fullness, able to purge the corruption by his sanctifying power. The present tense here indicates that he's ever burning. He's always active. He's constantly at work. He's ever busy removing the dross of our souls so that you and I can ultimately, with Christ, be holy and blameless. And to accomplish this, the Spirit is pleased to use the means that he's appointed. So that, according to Paul, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And finally, before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And perhaps this is the heavenly equivalent to the earthly sea of brass that was in Solomon's temple. Do you remember that? We're told in 1 Kings 7 that it was round, 10 cubits from brim to brim, It stood on 12 oxen. It held 2,000 baths. And on earth, that bath symbolized the gospel fountain for sin and uncleanness. It was for the purification of souls. The storm of divine wrath was to be stilled, and the covenant was to be secured, and the church was to be united, and the spirit was to be given, symbolized by that bath. And that earthly sea of brass in the household of God was a symbol of perfect calm. Well, in John's heavenly vision, this sea of glass represents perfect calm. It has to do with the calm, unruffled, insurmountable reign of a gracious God. And to that, every sincere believer in Christ may look forward with anticipation. So from every perspective, as we've seen tonight, the heavenly throne affirms the sovereignty of God. On the throne, around the throne, from the throne, before the throne, he is supreme. And in the chapters that follow, Jesus is going to reveal the severe trials through which the church must pass. What greater comfort can there be than that God is in absolute control of the universe? You can read the headlines, you can hear the reports, you can watch the news, you can learn of world events, it can get discouraging. But above it, behind it, through it all, is the throne on which the sovereign sits. He has perfect control of every detail in the entire created cosmos. And before the Lord, there is no alarm, no disorder, no trepidation or anxiety whatsoever. Over the entire universe, he extends his scepter and carries out his plan. According to the psalmist, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. His rule is firmly established so that we receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken. His rule is majestically great so that his greatness is unsearchable. 
and his rule is unswervingly constant so that he who keeps us neither slumbers nor sleeps. He will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. May that be a great encouragement to the saints of God this evening. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.